This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Chris Belcher, author of the memoir, Pretty Baby. I was a closeted queer kid. I was a butch dyke who really held fast to my masculinity as like essential to who I was. I was a broke graduate student who needed femininity because that's how I could sell my time to men. We'll be back with Chris Belcher after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with writer, professor, and former sex worker Chris Belcher. 
Belcher completed a PhD in English at the University of Southern California, where she now teaches gender and sexuality studies and in the writing program. Under her working name, Natalie West, she edited the anthology We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. Belcher's new memoir, Pretty Baby, tells the story of her transformation from the winner of an infant beauty contest to a queer teen rebel to renowned lesbian dominatrix in Los Angeles. Belcher grew up in rural West Virginia, and once she became a teenager, her identity and confidence were shaken because she didn't fit into her conservative community. The memoir follows Belcher throughout her childhood, her first lesbian love affair, her strained family relations, and on to college and into the professional dominatrix world. Belcher moves between academia and her pro-dom worlds and learns that lessons from her classroom can apply to the dungeon and vice versa. But she also lives with fear that if her doctoral program discovers her profession, it may be the end of her academic career. We began the discussion with me asking Chris Belcher this question. This is your second time on the show, but your first time uh, using a different name. So we talked about the collection that you edited called We Too under your name, Natalie West. Now you have your, uh, I think your birth name. Close enough, a shortened version. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, I think Natalie West was your dominatrix name. It was, yes. Yeah. So tell me about sort of this coming out. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the book Pretty Baby, um, it is a coming out narrative in a lot of different ways. There's two two different comings out, I guess, in the book. Um, one as queer, as a teenager, um, growing up in Appalachia. And then the second um, is my coming out as a sex worker as an adult in Los Angeles. But in the book, it doesn't fully happen. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the journey um, that I was getting toward um, in the book. And the book's publication, I think, is probably the actual coming out um, in a lot of ways um, to many people. And so, you know, the there's a lot of uh, sort of work that went into, um, you know, moving from publishing under my dominatrix name and having a, a kind of level of privacy afforded to that whole process, even though writing a book and editing a book is always going to be a really public endeavor. Um, I did have that that pen name of, of sorts to, to kind of um, shield some of my private life. And um, and with this this memoir, I made the decision that I wanted to publish it under my legal name. Um, it seemed like if I was really going to pursue, um, you know, writing a book about sex work that was meant to do some work around destigmatizing these professions, um, I couldn't continue on um, with with the pen name. And so that's why my legal name is on in the front of Pretty Baby. I'm curious about that journey. I mean, not just to put your name on your book, but, you know, you started doing sex work when you were getting your PhD in English. And so a lot of people might think that those are incongruous things. And one of the things you talk about in the book is that there was a lot of fear about being found out because you were applying for jobs or just the academic world wouldn't accept you. So their fear of maybe losing this other part of you that brought you to LA that has been your passion for a really long time. 
There's a great contradiction, I think, in academia because you know you you go to a program like a PhD program in literature, and you're you're there to like foster the life of your mind. But in order to do so, you often have to forget your body. <laughs> you have to forget all the things your body needs, whether that's rest or a vacation or food in some cases and housing in some cases, if you're living in a place like Los Angeles with a really high cost of living. And so, you know, there is this sort of imagined scenario in which you could come and, and live on a very small stipend and, 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 you know, practice the life of the mind. And for many people, like, you know, we're turning to gig work or turning to sex work. And I know lots of people who, um, who were moving through uh, graduate programs with, you know, sex work is, is um, their fuel. And so, you know, I, I, I was in the closet um, for much of the time that I was in graduate school and when I was on the job market. But the thing that, that really brought about writing this book was that I, you know, was trying to get academic jobs and and really just sort of toiling in the in the adjunct pool and and folks who teach as adjunct lecturers know um, it can be really hard. You often don't have benefits. Um, the pay is very low. The workload is very high. And I got to the point where I was like, why am I not writing the work that I want to write um, about sexuality and queerness and sex work? Like, why am I doing that for this job? Um, why am I hiding who I am and my experiences and all of the knowledge that I've gained in this part of my life to be an adjunct. At the end of the day, it felt unfair to the life of my mind to um, make those sacrifices. And so writing this book was a way to, you know, really reclaim my own writing process from graduate school um, in a lot of ways and reclaim myself from that process too. And is your PhD in queer feminist theory? My PhD is in English, but I yes, I focused on queer theory and and um, and feminist theory and also twentieth century literature and literature of the South. There's parts in your books that I want to ask you about, like what you were learning about, especially about feminist theory and writing and storytelling and how that maybe intersected with the work that you did or influenced it or changed maybe how you saw it over time. There, there are a couple of moments. The book is very much not academic, although I, I do hope that it reads like feminist praxis in some ways. It definitely is not feminist theory, but there are a few moments in the book where I bring in Eve Kozofsky Sedgwick's work a couple of times. Um, she writes on affect and shame. And um, there's this moment in the beginning of the book where I'm in a graduate seminar and um, we're discussing her work. And uh, the idea that we're discussing is um, how to distinguish shame from guilt. And so shame, she says, she writes, attaches to who one is, whereas guilt is just something that one does. And I think in terms of sex work, people often think that there is a certain kind of person who could do it, right? And that's the kind of contradiction with sex work in academia. There's a kind of person who does academia, and that's not the kind of person who does sex work and vice versa. And so, you know, I'm sitting in this room and I'm I'm learning these things, but I already know them. Like I've learned, I learned that lesson in the dungeon. I learned that lesson because I was in the closet and like just from that situation, I already knew it. I didn't need to read it in a book. And I think that I, what I hope my book does, especially for people who are interested in, in feminist theory or who are interested in queer theory is that 
the ideas that I'm working through as a dominatrix are, you know, more to me just as applicable um, as as the things that I was learning, um, you know, in my studies. And and so I do hope that the the boundaries or the lines between those two kinds of work um, get blurred. Yeah, I think that shame was, I wouldn't say that it was a, a theme, but it was a trope. It was something that came up. And in the very beginning, I mean, it's page seven, you're talking about how your esthetician was basically saying getting paid for sex work must be even worse than like hooking up with a bad dude. And then about 140 pages later, and you, you, you're talking about that shame and what it feels like and having having that shame in your life, not probably just from that because we all probably carry shame. But then later in your first, I think it was your first time working as a dominatrix, you write, all that shame faded away once I put the car in drive. I rolled the windows down to take the flush off my face and Hearts Barracuda came on the radio. I decided it would be my whore song. I just made $200 in 45 minutes and I hadn't even done a good job. So wondering if you did come to grips with that, with shame. You know, I, I didn't. One thing that I um, that I hope the book does across its trajectory is show that, you know, a lot of those moments where um, you would expect that somebody feels shame or shame has been inflicted on somebody as a sex worker, that that really lines up and parallels in lots of ways, the shame that girls feel in adolescence, the first time that, you know, they hook up with a boy or they feel desire, um, you know, whatever it is. Like, I do think that, um, there's a litany of shame in this book and it's not all related to the experience of sex work. I think that for me, the moments of shame that arose often, yeah, got washed away by, by the money. I think when put into a situation where I felt really acutely um, that nobody else needed money, that was the where the shame came from. Like in graduate school, when I was in a room with people who seemed to be making it just fine on on the money that we were given, um, maybe because they had other forms of income or family wealth or whatever it was, I was more ashamed of needing the money than I was of what I was doing to get it. Because what I was doing to get it, to me, um, at a certain point, it became sometimes fun, sometimes mundane, sometimes terrible, but I think that all work is terrible sometimes. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the shame, a lot of the shame in the book is, is class shame more than it is shame that, that attaches to, to sexuality. And I want to sort of explore with you that this was a memoir. It covered from your childhood all the way up to basically a, a, a very intense session in, in the dungeon through your grad school, through your coming out as a lesbian and what it was like growing up in West Virginia. And I'm curious how, like you are not just a dominatrix. You are not just a queer woman. You are not just someone from West Virginia. You are not just someone who had a lot more privilege than maybe your fellow workers. So just want to like share that, like just because you were a dominatrix doesn't mean you are a dominatrix. That's not your identity. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, as you explored that through your book, if you learned anything or came to any conclusions about that? You know, I thought when I set out to write this book that I had a sense 
of where I had gotten on a journey. <laughs> I think that we often imagine that memoir is it's a searching for the self. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you have a kind of coherent sense of who that self is. I think that when I actually sat down to write the book, and I, I had intended this to be a collection of essays, I did not intend to write a memoir when I a- approached, um, you know, all of the, the powers that be in the publishing industry to try to write a book. And when I sat down and, and started actually imagining it on the page as a memoir, I found that there were there was a complete incoherence in who I was as myself. And I think that it's just, yeah, I mean, you know, like I was a young girl who really clung to her heterosexuality. I was like a closeted queer kid. I was a butch dyke who really held fast to my masculinity as like essential to who I was. I was a broke graduate student who needed femininity because that's how I could sell my time to men. You know, all of those selves coexist on the page. And I think that the memoir form is what allowed me to see all of that because I I didn't see the journey as, as being so fractured, actually, um, until I started putting it on the page. Like, how would you describe yourself now that it's that not just that the book is out in the world, but having gone through all that, and I think you're an assistant professor at USC. What does it feel like now when you maybe explain to yourself who you are? I, I think still very unfinished. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. But I think that's also just um, I think that's just queer people. Um, I think that queer people have a real sense of exploration around gender and sexuality that allows us to continue playing far longer um, or maybe forever. I don't know. I think, um, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't settled on on any of these questions. The, the book, you know, asks lots of questions about femininity, about masculinity. I definitely haven't settled any of those things for myself. I, I've changed my pronouns even in the past year and then changed them back. I don't, you know, I, I think that um, I think that I that all of this is still unfinished, even though it got recorded in a memoir. Maybe that could feel um, liberatory for some writers of memoir. I think that um, it can feel really intimidating to face the page when you don't actually know the end of the story. Um, but I, I don't think that you need to. Your childhood, you grew up in West Virginia. You're the elder of two sisters. And you you were clearly like both precocious and very intelligent and verbal and very interested in, in literature. You write about Um, like you had a pact with your friend Becca when you were in, I think it was seventh grade that you were going to have sex before you went back to eighth grade. You um, were a cheerleader. You said that you wanted scars that showed you had your first girlfriend who you met on AOL online and your mom took you to visit her. And it's just was so heartbreaking, like your time with her and the intimacy you had for this weekend and how, I mean, you didn't have licenses. You couldn't like drive to see each other and how heartbreaking it was to leave her. So just wanted to ask you about like the formation of your sensibility of the world. Like those are just some highlights from the book, but obviously you got to where you are now and became a writer and interested in these things because of a lot of childhood. So just wanted to ask you about that. 
Yeah, I wanted this book to really take seriously um, my adolescent feelings and not see them as something that had to be overcome or that like adulthood had to conquer in some way. Um, I think that I'm I'm probably pretty close to, as an adult, pretty close to the girl that I was then. Um, I think that, you know, that kind of, yeah, that sort of like precocious attitude toward things like sex and sexuality, like, I don't think that I could have turned my career in the ways that I did in, in sex work had I not been that girl. Um, and yeah, I have, I have a lot of love for my my girlhood self and I I think that um yeah I I hope that the that it shows that the book really takes that seriously because I think that teen girl feelings are seen as especially you know like those those early like let's have sex with boys you know like we got these ideas from like you know the craft and the real world and like uh, like pop culture like does play a, a big role especially in the earlier chapters of the book and i think that we can dis- dismiss all of those kinds of um longings um as just silliness and and i don't i think that they were legitimate desires about wanting to be women and um and wanting to know what all of that was about and you know, that's something that I felt when I was younger. And it was something I felt again when I was 25 and, you know, growing my hair out for the first time in a very long time and, and being in intimate situations with men for the first time in my life. And not until I was, yeah, doing sex work when I was in my twenties. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I think I, I just, yeah, I tried to take who I was as a kid really seriously. Yeah, and I'm. I guess I'm kind of curious, although it might not have an answer. Like, how, where did you get that? You know, I think like you were very. Um, I think you were very adamant in who you were, even if it had to fight against this the, the small mindedness of some of the people around you. Whether you decided to cut your hair like in a really butch style, and your dad was just like, "What are you doing to yourself?" Um, to just the boys at school who would taunt you like there was something in you that was fiercely independent you know i think and and this has been this has been a little bit hard for me to grapple with because there are writers who who are from appalachia and have stayed in appalachia and and who who write about that place in a very different way than i do um whose work i really admire i was never the kind of person who wanted to stay in the country. Um, and I don't think that that is an easy or fashionable thing to say um, as a queer person who leaves the country. Um, I have a deep appreciation for that place now. And I think a lot of that actually grew out of the writing process. Um, but when I was a kid, I think that, you know, a lot of this did come from seeing things on film and TV and looking around and thinking like this, something's not right here. <laughs> like This place where I am feels very small and I want to be bigger. And I think that I sort of, a, a lot of my self-fashioning was about leaving. Um, one of the moments that I, that I record um, in an earlier chapter of the book um, was with that same friend, Becca we were, you know, sitting around just imagining who we were going to be. And I, I said to her in like 
the fifth grade or something, sixth grade, when I, when I grow up, I, I, when I go to college, I'm going to be a lesbian. And I only knew the word lesbian because I saw it on the real world, but the real world was the place I wanted to go, right? I wanted to go to MTV. I did not want to be, um, in my tiny small town. And, um, and so I think that a lot of it was about wanting to be elsewhere and like imagining like who was the person who was elsewhere. When you were writing this, like craft wise about your childhood, you know, you'd changed so much since you lived there. Like, did you have journals? Like, how did you go back to that place of, of memory and feeling? I do have, I have journals. I worked from photographs. Um, I worked from uh, letters, like a lot of the the letters survived from my high school romance, with my first girlfriend. So I had all of that. And I think, I think like most writers, I'm also just a, a storyteller in a, in a social scenario. <laughs> so a lot of the things that end up on the page of those books, it's funny because I, I, a friend of mine who I knew for a long time before writing the book read it and she was like I knew every story almost in this book because you just told me um and I think that those memories are never going to be the same because once you put them onto the page and once you're actually thinking about craft and and the way that you're telling the story on the page as opposed to the way that you're just sharing stories with friends, I do think that it changes and I probably won't be able to like have those stories the same way anymore to tell at a party or at a campfire or on a date or whatever it might be. But um, yeah, I think that a lot of those stories have just been around in my mouth and, you know, in my brain for a long time. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this was like kind of like that thin margin or those those small moments that happen to us that change the course of our life. So you were talking a little bit and there's moments of that in your, in your book. You were talking about how basically there was um, a scholarship when you were in high school that if you got all B's, you could go to college and you would get free tuition. And you were talking about how if that didn't exist, you might have had a life more like people around you, like just working like more menial labor jobs. And then in LA, you met this woman on a date named Catherine, who introduced you to this dominatrix work, but which, you know, opened up this whole new world and income for you. And it's just so interesting sometimes with life, how timing is so influential on our story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's funny because I, I, I didn't do a, a lot of formal training as a creative nonfiction writer or a creative writer at all. My training is as an academic, um, but I took a few really crucial classes in the when I was writing this book, and um, one of them was with Alex Marzano Lesnovich. Um, the class was incredible, but I remember that they were talking about um, you know the the doors that once you open you can't close them, um, and I had written a draft of the book before I internalized this, this craft advice, but then I couldn't unsee all of the doors all over the place. Um, all of those moments, um, across, across the memoir. And I think, you know, in, in some ways it makes me feel like, like me as protagonist in this book, um, 
oftentimes I was sort of moving through the world by circumstance. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us who maybe come from lower income backgrounds or like, you know, whatever it might be, like we are living by circumstance in, in a lot of ways, right? Like who are you going to end up being with because you need support of some kind? That person's going to shift your life in different ways. And I definitely um, think too that a lot of the relationships that you see in the book were kind of self-making relationships. Um, and so like none of this is, is kind of done um, yeah, with 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 total agency, right? Um, I think that's that's uh, magical thinking, or it's um, maybe I don't know cis white male thinking. <laughs> it's coming from a particular class background. Definitely a lot of like circumstance opening doors uh, in the book. Yeah, and I think maybe agency. I mean, it's interesting because I think in some levels. Like there's nothing we can control in life, right? We want to, as much as we want to control everything, we don't. And yes, we can have agency in our lives, but we can't control the external circumstances. And yet you were working in a very controlled environment for a long time where you had all the agency in the room. And I wondered how that might have affected your voice. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, the the role of the dominatrix is one that I think that I try my best to to complicate um, in the book, because the woman with power, the woman with all of the agency, it is constructed for that hour, but it's also being instructed by the man who's paying. So, um, you know, it's it's a kind of fabricated agency that to me did feel very good if I allowed myself to be in the fantasy with him but it it definitely is is fabricated in, in a lot of ways well in term in terms of writing craft i think there's a lot that you can learn from something like prodoming because prodoming is all about um putting bodies where you want them in a room and utilizing that time and space to craft something um, I think I actually learned a lot about the physical form on the page through prodoming. Once it once it clicked to me that I was like, oh, okay, like I need to put this arm somewhere. I mean, I think there's a lot of that in that last chapter of the book that is um the chapter that has the extended scene in the dungeon, probably the most extended scene in the dungeon. The writing is very close to the body because that's what's happening when you're crafting a scene in the dungeon as well. And I think that nuance of the power dynamic in the room is really interesting that that I think you mentioned you wanted to try to impress on the reader how complicated it is because you do have the power and in most of your clients but not every single one are men who want to be dominated but there's also like fear like you're closing the door and you're in a room with a man alone maybe he's big or you've talked about what the yeses and the nos are before they come but you don't always know that they'll hold to it you have a story in there of a guy who's telling you basically how he pulled a knife on on one of the workers that was working with him once and so there's so much vulnerability in that work and it seems so scary and how did you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, I think at first, the thrill of it felt 
a bit exciting in the ways that dangerous things do. Um, I think that, you know, honestly, like this is, people feel this when they're just falling in love with someone or hooking up with someone, I think, you know, going into a stranger's apartment or getting into a stranger's bed and not knowing what their body is going to be like, or not knowing what their breath is going to be like, or whatever it is. Like there is a sense of, of danger that is thrilling and that wears off really quickly, <laughs> just like it does in a relationship. It wears off pretty quickly in this work too. And, you know, I think, you know, I did everything that I could most of the time to keep myself safe. Um, sex workers, um, if they're privileged enough to have community, have safety calls, um, have, you know, different kinds of precautions that you take so that people know where you are. You know, the book starts with a prologue in which I didn't tell anyone where I was. And so it does start in a moment of danger. And, and I wanted the first, uh, I wanted the book to start in a moment of danger because I didn't want to write a book that um, portrayed sex work as all glitz and glamour and no danger because it's it's not that. And I think, you know, there was a period in time, you know, kind of coming out of third wave feminism that sex work was written as something that is uncomplicated and that is safe um, entirely because that's a great argument for having other feminists listen to your voice and <laughs> say, I'm safe, I'm fine. Um, I've got this, I have agency. Um, and it is more complicated than that. And I think that that's an important uh, story to tell now at this juncture as well. But yeah, I mean, keeping yourself safe is like a practical matter. Um, but there were times when it didn't feel safe as well. And one of the things that really struck me as I was reading this was that you probably have to be a pretty good storyteller to be a dominatrix. Like, you're creating these scenarios or on the fly, you're yelling at your client or making them feel bad and that it's all kind of storytelling. And a lot of it is improv storytelling. And I want to hear what you have to say about that. And also did that help writing this book? Yeah. You know, it, it's also reliant on a lot of really standard tropes. <laughs> so, like, so sometimes, um, you know, sometimes the story that you create together is like really beautiful and nuanced, just like any writers uh, collaborating. Um, and sometimes you're just drawing on the same old tired tropes and stereotypes um, that, you know, also haunt us as writers. And so, um, yeah, I think I do think that that's true. And I think it, it, it is um, it's a two way street as well. It's a dynamic. Um, you know, you can be ready to write the most uh the most intricate and interesting story. And if your scene partner isn't there, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, there's a, there's a story in the book where I'm trying to have a scene. I'm trying to write a scene with somebody um, where I want to take the dialogue into really interesting territory. And he only knows one line. <laughs> so, you know, like there actually is a kind of thwarted story in in the book. Now that you say that, make, that's really funny. I never I didn't think about it like that. But it, 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 there is a, a thwarted narrative in the book. Actually, a few. Do you want to say more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I can I can talk a little bit about um, an earlier one. There's a scene that I'm endeavoring with uh, a client who was interested in erotic humiliation and erotic humiliation just like a lot of these scenes has its like very familiar tropes um one familiar trope is small penis humiliation 
Like that is just in in the world of BDSM, it's in the culture. Um, there are a lot of people who eroticize the idea of, of being being humiliated for the size of their penis. And so, you know, when somebody says that they want humiliation, I assume that it's going to follow one of the pretty standard tropes. And this person came into the dungeon and what he wanted to pursue was humiliation for his his weight, his his body size. And that's a story I didn't know. I mean, it's a story we all know because we live in a world that is fat phobic. And so we all have that trope in our minds, but it wasn't a story I'd ever tried to write with anyone before. Um, and it ended up um, pretty disastrously. I guess I won't say any more because I don't want to, I don't want to completely spoil the chapter, but, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, BDSM does rely really heavily on a lot of particular like mythologies and um and the scripts can feel really familiar but when when they don't they can be um they can be really interesting and intricate and beautiful that's probably when your work day is just like any work day where you're just kind of filing your nails and hoping that the clock strikes an hour very quickly yeah absolutely no absolutely and um yeah, it, it, it is work that, that gets more mundane, I think, than, than most people would, would guess. I mean, it must be really interesting, though, to see, like you were saying, the mythology or the the repeated themes. Like, it, it kind of makes me think about Joseph Campbell and the, and the hero's journey and the archetypes of humanity. And you were in such a very particular realm of work where that would come up a lot I mean did it make you feel that we were in generally like as a human race like a little bit boring <laughs> um it did <laughs> Oftentimes, yeah it did um and I mean you know if if anybody dips their toe into that world at all you'll yeah you'll see um how how few of these stories we actually tell ourselves. And I mean, you know, like that's probably true in a lot of ways in the books that we read. Um, we're just, we're just recycling a lot of, a lot of stories. And if you can come in with the, with the craft and the style to like tell it in a way that feels new to somebody, it's, it's really exciting for both of those people. Yeah. It's so interesting to think about our psyches and how, so many similar things plague so many people. So I wanted to ask you about, there was a fetish photographer, like we were talking just earlier about fear and what really happened to you was a different kind of fear. It wasn't like a bodily fear. It was someone who turned on you. He was friends with your girlfriend and took photos of you and he was a professional photographer, a fetish photographer, and something went sideways with him, like something just didn't work. Maybe it was jealousy of your relationship with your girlfriend, but he basically tried to out you. I don't know how successful he was. He made he t used pictures of you. He made a website with your real name in this thing that was very private to you. Just wanted to ask you about that experience and having something like so violating in that way happen? It was really difficult because at that time I was in graduate school and I was really worried that if this came out, I wouldn't be able to finish my degree. 
Um, so it did feel like everything that I'd worked for to, you know, as, as a scholar was, was on the line and, you know, what, what it shows me now, I think I couldn't have gotten there at the time because, you know, when it's something is happening like this, like people who have experienced, um, blackmail or revenge porn or, you know, an abusive partner stalking or any of these things, I don't think you can see beyond the anxiety of the moment. When I look back on it now, it's just the power that the closet had over me in a lot of ways. And and I think that there are there are a million reasons why people stay in the closet or need to stay in the closet, whether they're queer or whether they're a sex worker or whatever it is. And I had my reasons for staying in, in the closet, but because I had that secret, I didn't have the power, right? Like the, the, you know, a closet can, can hold secrets and it can hold those secrets are powerful. And so, you know, I, I wish that the world had been different for me at that time. Like I wish I could have just said to my professors and the administrators, of the graduate school, like, Hey, you guys don't pay me enough money. I'm making some on the side doing sex work. And then that would solve the problem. He wouldn't have had that power over me. And that's, that's a problem with him. And that's a problem with the world that we live in. And it wasn't a, a problem of mine. But I think at the time that it was happening, you know, I did, I, again, blame myself for needing the money or blame myself for being so stupid to work with somebody who I didn't know if I could trust, you know, and all of those things. And, um, you know, now I have gotten to a place where I can put the blame where it, where it really belongs, which I think is in stigma and shame around sex and sex work. Yeah. Because do you think you really would have gotten kicked out of school? I'm not sure. In in this climate now, I mean, I published this book. I still work at that university, um, you know, and I felt safe enough to do it. This is also a very different moment in sex worker activism that I think a decade ago was. I think that a decade ago, we were in a different, we were just in a different world. I had a friend of mine did reality TV um, around the same time that all of this was happening. And there was a little bit of nudity on, on the reality TV show. And she was also teaching in my program. And she was told by people who are no longer there, but, you know, told like, you know, you're not going to be able to work, at, you know, you're not going to be able to do this job and, and interface with these students um, if you're having work like this out there on a, a premium streamer. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do think, I do think that it's still, um, it's still a scary thing. I do. And I think that, you know, people have had their jobs threatened because they do sex work or people have lost, lost jobs because they've done porn or only fans or any of these things. And so I don't know, I can't, I can't know, I can't go back and, and find out what would happened. But I, I know that the fear was definitely very real for me. And I'm assuming now that your book's out, there was a time where you had to have some kind of reckoning with your family. I don't know if they knew you were doing this work, but they probably know now. Yeah, yeah they do. To, to a certain extent. I, um, I came out to my mom um, because I wanted her to read the ARC. I needed her to because I needed her to to verify a lot of things <laughs> early early on in the book. And when I told her, she said she was like, "I've always known a mother knows everything." Um, okay, I don't think that you did, but sure. And you know, there's a lot in this book about my father that um, 
would be really difficult for a relationship that we're trying to rebuild. Um, we lost touch for um, some years and, and it, I think it means a lot to both of us that we are in touch again now. And so um, I asked him not to read the book, actually. Um, I, I told him that, you know, I, I was publishing a book and it was about sex and sexuality and gender and it's my own journey and it's very personal and I would I don't think it would be helpful to our relationship if you read it and he agreed and and you know I think that if if there is you know like one of the the arcs of the book um does chart out my relationship with my father and there's definitely no hero's journey in the book uh in that relationship but I think you know, th this thing that happened outside around the publication of the book maybe actually is the end of that story in, in a in a um, successful way. And your sister? My sister loved it. Um, we have very different memories of, of our childhood. The, the epigraph of the book actually is a quote from my sister that just says, you only remember the bad stuff, um, which is what she says to me every single time we talk about our childhood. Um, which which might be true, but I actually think that the earlier chapters of the book have like a great deal of humor and there's a lot of good stuff in there. But um, yeah, we have very different perspectives. We we're just very different people as as all, all siblings are. Um, but she really liked the book. One of the things you talk about in there in many places, which kind of brings in your academic background is you're kind of looking at the power dynamics of women in general and you say in there, this is just one line of, of many ideas that repeated on more than just this page, but you said women don't have to pay to relinquish power. So a lot of the things you're looking at in the book are the ways that these men come to you to be dominated, to be submissive, and they're paying a lot of money. And that that is just not women's experiences in the society we live in. It happens to us all the time. You know, that kind of, you know, powerlessness, um, you know, I do think that I, I felt it um, often, um, even in those moments where I was being paid to be powerful. And I think that, you know, women's access to something like sex work, I mean, there's lots of reasons why women don't seek out sex workers. Some of them are financial. Women just don't make as much money as men. Obviously, a lot of it's social. Um, I I actually, um, I went through a period of time, like around the, temporally around the end of this book, where I wanted to um, seek out a sex worker myself, because I had these ideas about... Um, you know, it would be, it would feel really good to be the one that's designing the fantasy and not just responding to somebody else's fantasy. Like I wanted to be in that position and I I couldn't do it every time I would craft an email um, to people who, who would have been, I'm sure more than happy to, um, you know, satisfy these desires. I second guessed myself and I felt like, oh, it's not, like maybe that's weird or like, oh, maybe like she wouldn't be interested in that or whatever it was. Like I just couldn't do it. Um, and I, I never have. Um, and I think that that's really telling. Right? <laughs> um, like even, even when I wanted to like step into that kind of power and even after I had been doing the work of a pro dom for 
many years and, and, you know, had a real sense of um, authority in that world, I couldn't claim it for myself. Um, And I don't know if I ever, again, like stories unfinished, I don't know if I ever will, but I think it it is really telling, um, you know, the ease with which men um, can just like, you know, type up their fantasies, send them to somebody and pay for them to be satisfied. And I couldn't even hit send on a, on, on an email. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influences you as a writer? Yeah, I'm going to read um, a little bit from Leslie Feinberg's Stone Butch Blues. Um, this is a novel that's about, um, it's about being a, a butch woman in the middle of the the 20th century in America, um, a working class from a working class background. And in the beginning of the book, it's open, it it opens in an epistolary form. Um, and the protagonist is writing a letter to a former lover, um, that they, that got them through a lot of, a lot of the hard times, um, they were going through when they were coming into their own gender and sexuality. Um, but this book, I think, you know, I, I think of it as, as having a kind of ancestral relationship to Pretty Baby. And so I'll read from that. For more than 20 years, I have lived on this lonely shore, wondering what became of you. Did you wash off your Saturday night makeup in shame? Did you burn in anger when women said, if I wanted a man, I'd be with a real one? Are you turning tricks today? Are you waiting tables or learning WordPerfect 5.1? It's like a beautiful 90s reference. This book is, was written in 1993. Are you in a lesbian bar looking out of the corner of your eye for the butchest woman in the room? Do the women there talk about democratic politics and seminars and co-ops? Are you with women who only bleed monthly on their cycles? Or are you married in, in another blue-collar town, lying with an unemployed auto worker who is much more like me than they are, listening for the even breathing of your sleeping children? Do you bind his emotional wounds the way you tried to heal mine? Do you ever think of me in the cool night? I've been writing this letter to you for hours. My ribs hurt bad from a recent beating. You know. I never could have survived this long if I'd never known your love, yet I still ache with missing you and need you so. Only you could melt this stone. Are you ever coming back? Do you want to share why you chose that? You know, I think the the way that Feinberg in this novel really brings sex workers to the center of queer politics is really monumental and we don't have a lot of cultural production that has made its way in a lasting form into the mainstream that does that. And so, um, you know, I love, I, I mean, I love that the letter that starts this book. Um, it's, it's a letter that's not, it's not just a a letter of, um, love and loss, but it's also a political statement. Um, yeah. I, I, I love the letter. If, I, if you haven't picked up Stone Butch Blues, I would say at least read the letter in the beginning. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I'm going to read um, from the very end of chapter four of Pretty Baby. Um, and the reason why this um, this bit was really hard to get on the page is because 
I kept getting the memory wrong. And I think that this is maybe a reason why people are afraid of memoir um, in some ways, because I believed that and I have a very strong memory of something happening. When I reached out to the person who I thought was there, who I thought it happened to and with, um, she said that she didn't remember it that way. And so grappling with a memory that is so important to your story, but somebody else is, is right there telling you like, no, it didn't happen like that is a really tricky thing to, to get into a book <laughs> that is about telling truths. Right. Um, and so you'll, you'll see, I think when I read it, like what I did, um, but in the story, um, the character Jess is um, somebody who was, I looked up to in, in some ways I was afraid of in other ways. Um, she was the first butch lesbian um, who was really in my life. Um, and we played softball together and um, my dad was the coach. Then one day at practice, she punched him. Jess pitched a ball that he called below the strike zone. It was low, but not that low. A generous umpire may have given it to her, but dad was the umpire at practice and he wasn't generous. He knelt there on creaking knees to guide her into the zone, but she just didn't make it. I watched from third base. Jess didn't like the call and she let him know it, threw her arms up and called bullshit. Dad jumped up from behind home plate, his eyes wide like they got behind our fence, our yard, our, our vinyl siding our insulation, our drywall, our paint, like they got inside our home where he jumped up off his recliner and came at me. Everyone can see this, I thought. Everyone is watching. My dad shared the secret of his anger with Jess and the whole team. It had always been concealed, known only to our family of four. No matter how often she hung around in our garage, Jess was not family. She stumbled back from him, braced herself, and threw her fist into his face. His salt and pepper mustache, yellowed at the lips with sweet tea stains, bloodied. When we grow up and away from the town that raised us, I'll ask Jess, do you remember hitting my dad? She'll say she doesn't. She doesn't think she hit him. Maybe she did. Sounds like her. But she'll remember that I wanted to. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Yeah, um, the first draft of this piece um, probably would have ended with his salt and pepper mustache yellowed at the lips with tea, sweet tea stains bloodied. Um, I remember this happening. I remember it happening with everything in my being. Um, and, you know, to be obviously true to the story, true, true to the other person who was part of the story, I had to ask the question. And so it ends in a very different way. Um, you know, like there's, there's no way around it, but, um, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the memory is true because I needed just to have punched my dad in the face. Like I really needed that. And that's the thing I remember. Um, but maybe it didn't happen. I, I don't know, but I, I still think, you know, memories like that can be in memoirs. Um, and I think that they're still just as true as if, you know, as if we're, we're seeing them yesterday. Where do you write? Um, I write anywhere I can. Um, I write in coffee shops. I uh, Most of, of Pretty Baby was written during the pandemic, so it happened in one place looking out one window. Um, but, um, you know, I used to 
wait for the right place to to write. I used to write, I used to wait for the, you know, I have to have four hours and I have to have quiet and I have to have all of this. And it was those were all excuses to not write. So now I just write wherever I can. Sometimes I'm just like speaking into voice notes on my phone or, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and jotting down an idea in my notes app. I consider all of those things to be writing. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I am very involved in the queer party scene in Los Angeles. Um, I really love queer nightlife. I love house music, um, leather bars, um, you know, like all of these spaces I I bring into writing, but um, they're also a place to get away from it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I do have a really beautiful writers group. Um, We're called Leserati. Um, It's an intergenerational group. Uh, It's cross genre. It's all lesbian. Um, The group has been together for a very long time. I was lucky enough to get a space when somebody else had to move away, Um, but they're wonderful. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, When I get a rejection email, I delete it immediately and pretend it never happened. And and then I just keep wanting things. (laughs) So I try to forget I would try to forget the rejection um, and just focus on the things that I that I want. Um, yeah, I just I mostly pretend it didn't happen. And what is your favorite word? Uh, right now, it's canyon, um, uh, which is a good word uh, to have in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so appreciative. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for making the show, and thank you for having me on. It was lovely. If you like today's show with Chris Belcher, author of the memoir Pretty Baby. Check out my previous interview with her where she used her dominatrix pen name, Natalie West. We talked about the collection she edited called We Too, which featured essays from sex workers on issues such as how they were impacted by the Me Too movement, exploitation and violence in the field, and sex worker rights. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jai, Chakrabarty, Mona Simpson, and Catherine Ma. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.